Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining me for the 13th episode of my new podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is why managers should say, sorry, I wasn't feeling, as opposed to sorry, I wasn't thinking. With me is Carrie Cooper, the co-author of a pair of books that we'll be exploring together today. The first is The Apology Impulse, How the Business World Ruined Sorry and Why We Can't Stop Saying It. The second is Well-Being at Work, How to Design, Implement, and Evaluate an Effective Strategy. Frankly, Carrie's credentials and prolific activities are almost too numerous to count, but I'm going to try anyway. Yes, Carrie is a professor of organizational psychology and health at Manchester Business School, part of the University of Manchester in England. But he's also the author, editor of over 250 books and has been the president of numerous organizations, including the British Academy Academy of Management. He's also also been an advisor to the World Health Organization and the EU. Finally, and perhaps most impressive of all, not only has he received a knighthood, he's likewise been awarded the title of CBE, which for us Yanks translates as the commander of the most excellent order of the British Empire, a title given by Her Majesty the Queen for extraordinary contributions to society. It's my great pleasure and honor, Carrie, to honor to welcome you to the show. Thanks, Dan. Look forward to it. Absolutely. So let's start with the apology impulse uh, for listeners. Can you give them just a brief sense of what the book is about? Yeah. Well, a, a colleague of mine, a friend of mine, and I were talking one day, and we said. There was a, some apology by a politician and another one by a business leader in the same week. It wasn't an apology at all. They were covering their backside. And so we started to talk about it. And then we decided to write an article about it, which then went viral. And then a publisher came to us and said, hey, this is great. Can you do a book on it? Can you collect all the, the faux pas, all the uh, non-apologies and apologies, the good ones and the bad ones, uh, but and why don't you concentrate on business leaders? Because there were so many political ones and business ones. We decided, you know, to do a 200-page book. You're going to do it. You know, you're going to. You won't be able to do put it, fill them all in because you're getting several of these a week, uh, both sure. the politicians and business leaders. So that's what we did, and we were looking at, you know, the good ones and the bad ones from the BP. Uh, incident in the Gulf of Mexico to uh, General Motors, which they did in 2014, the ignition uh, problems they had with their cars, which was a good apology. And we were looking at, but most of them are bad. Most of them are not apologies. Most of them are lawyers telling them what to say, PR people telling them what to say, and to cover their themselves, not get litigation, not get in any trouble. 
Sure. No, I, I certainly noticed these apologies, whether it's the British prime minister talking about their nuclear accident some years ago, or in BP case, the infamous line, I just want my life back, which didn't go down so well with people. Not really, no. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so in the book, and I think this is a really good distinction, you're talking about operational failure versus cultural failure as to why they an apology is forthcoming, whether it's a good one or not. Can you tell us a bit about the distinction between each, including yeah. uh, which one is maybe the most difficult to address or rectify? Yeah, the organizational one, a plane is, uh, a number of planes are late because of some problem on maintenance of the aircraft, let's say. So a number of them are late, that's operational and what you do is you, you know, you give them an extra ticket, you, you refund their ticket, you do whatever you have to do to, to do it. You apologize, say you're wrong. So operational ones are not too complicated to deal with. Incidentally, that's not necessarily done well either. But in any case, yeah. you know, there are things you can do operationally. When it's a cultural one, uh, then I think, and it's institutionalized, and you've got a real problem there, I think. For example, you know, uh, if you take some social network platform, for example, who allows fake news to enter it and people complain about it. Hey, that's not true. How did you allow that? Why did you take that down? And they don't take it down. And that's about the culture of they want the income to come in. They don't from particular sources, whether it's a political party or an organization or whatever. And that is, and it's that's intrinsic into the culture. They don't have a kind of sense of purpose. And those ones, I think, are much more complicated to get to and requires them to take strategic action. And I think we've just seen that recently with Facebook, who recently, having everybody complained about fake news, political people coming in and doing things, they have finally, after all these years, decided they're going to try to manage that process now. But that has taken a culture change. Yeah, and we'll see how much Zuckerberg actually does modify. I've watched him when he testified in front of Congress, and quite honestly, as a facial coder, what struck me was his degree of indignation, uh, hence probably stubbornness regarding the, the need to change. So it will be interesting. The advertisers are, are weighing in. Is there ever a situation, and it, it strikes me there must be, where really the operational and the cultural failure are, are hand in glove? I'm thinking of Wells Fargo, for instance, here in the United States. The operational failure was the opening of all these bogus accounts because managers and employees were under pressure to increase yep. the number of customers. But ultimately, it seems to me in some ways that's a cultural failure that's hard for them to root no, out. No, Dan, you're, you're absolutely right. That's a cultural failure in the sense that what the organization did was to send, you know, to incentivize people to get more business in, no matter how they got the business in. And by the way, how about the crash of 2008? And look at Wall Street. What did they do? You know, the uh, unsecuritized mortgages and unsecuritized that that was all led by the culture of the organization saying, we're going to really reward you the more of this junk you sell. Right. And that's yep. what happened there. So again, did we, by the way, did we ever get an apology from anybody in Wall Street? Because they not only affected the United States, they affected the whole world with, with probably the worst recession other than the one we're about to go into now. But that was the worst recession since the, since the Depression. So to be honest with you, you, you know, you are right. There are some scenarios where the culture 
creates the operational is operationalized in a particular way, which is problematic too, and creates problems for customers or a society indeed, in the case of the crash of 2008. Sure. Well, I remember from the 2008 crash, there was a cartoon I particularly liked. It shows a banker on a ledge and he's about to jump a la 1929 in the stock market crash. In the second frame of the commercial, he's lying face down on the pavement, but he's on his cell phone. He says to somebody, oh, me, I'm fine. I landed on a taxpayer. <laughs> I found it pretty amusing. Yeah, absolutely. A little, a little absolutely. Disturbing. Absolutely. So, yeah. So another point in your book, you, you talk about who's going to give the apology. Yes, you could trot out the PR representative, but how about when it's the CEO? I mean, from your study, uh, you know, what are we particularly looking for in the CEO's performance? I'm even interested from the angle of their, their facial expressions, which ones might be, which emotions shown are more effective than less effective. Yeah, I think that's really important. Number one, let's start with who should do the apology. If it's just a kind of operational, not a heavy one, you know, it's the computers are down at, a, for an air, for, at an airport for one day, right? That's an operational problem. Probably don't necessarily need the CEO. Although in my view, I think you do. I think the CEO should be out there. And here we go again about something to do with like authentic leadership. Listen, I mean, think about a poor old CEO, right? To the poor old CEO earning about 200 times more than the average employee. But let's forget that for the time being. We'll perhaps deal with that a bit later. But think about the CEO and think about whether he or she actually has been trained or has the social interpersonal skills to deal with the media. Okay, they're influenced by, number one, the lawyers. Whatever you do, don't admit guilt. Don't say that. You can say you're sorry. You can say, uh, I apologize for the inconvenience. Uh, you can say this, that, and the other, so you're constrained. Second of it's the PR people who tell them what to say, what he or she should say. And actually, what should happen is that person should do the human response. How would I feel if I was at the other end of this catastrophe? this problem. How would I feel? And you're, you're the recipient of it. So you want to get, you know, uh, you know this is horrific. Uh, we really, you know, did make a big mistake here. And I, I think, again, going back to the CEO of General Motors, I think it was 2014, who did a really great apology and uh, people yeah. died as a result of that. I can't remember how many, but 150 or something like that it was a lot. And, and he just was a human being. He went on as a human being. He empathized with the people who were who suffered as a result of that failure, and uh, and people actually died as a consequence. Okay, and and made recompense and and held a hand up and said, "We're responsible. We did this. We're wrong. We own up to it, and this is what we're going to do." And I think that's the way. It should be done. But unfortunately, and you will get, by the way, CEOs and very senior people who have naturally the skills to do this. The majority of them probably don't. And all the training in the world can't tell you to be normal. In fact, the training sometimes gets that out of you rather than you wanting to just be yourself. What you end up doing is you end up saying what the PR people write for you and what the lawyers constrain you to say. And I think that that's the problem. Be human. 
be and and yes, you're gonna you're take you're gonna take a hit because you always do. But it's better to take a short term hit than a long term hit. Yeah, no, well, I think, you know, in my um, analysis of things, it seems to me that a lot of people get to the corner office, tend to come from an operational background, a finance background, exactly. a legal background. So the, the human skills, I mean, not a lot of them get there because they were in customer service, needless to say, uh, maybe a few more because they have a sales background. But I, I think there's a lot of the other fields. In fact, so you know, Dan, I've never heard. Up. Yeah, you know, Dan, I've never heard of an HR director. Uh, or vice president for people management or whatever the euphemism is, you know? Yeah. I've never heard of any of those becoming or rarely becoming a CEO. You do get occasionally, but very rare. So you don't get the people people in the business getting into that kind of position. Although probably we certainly do need CEOs who have, I think we, who have the social interpersonal skills, but, but I think it's rare that you get them. Yeah, no, in my experience, a lot of, if there are women, for instance, because Mary Barra was, uh, I'm not getting her name right, but at General Motors, she was the one, I think, who gave that textbook apology. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. And, um, you know, very often in my analysis, again, as uh, amateurs it might be, it seems that women are, you know, put in charge of PR or communications and HR. You don't often see them still in a lot of the other roles that help them get to the corner suite. So just in passing, I found an, a, a footnote that intrigued me in your book, trying to look at, it was a study looking at which emotions were effective and ineffective in an apology. Uh, this may have come from your, your co-author, so I'm just going to jump in in a second with what's the answer, but do you have any kind of instincts as to which specific emotions are good for a CEO to show and which to stay away from uh, okay. in a, a press conference? Yep. Oh, okay. So in a press conference, yeah. what emotions are the good ones? Yeah, and which, which ones, ones you should stay away, stay away from? from? I think, I think get, stay away from the standardized response. You know, yeah. uh, our hearts, I hate this. I don't know if you, uh, I hate when somebody says something like, our hearts are going out to the people who have suffered as a consequence of this. Because they, it's a pro forma. Almost yeah. everybody says that. It's better to say, you know, if this had happened to my family and I've had problems in my own life, X, Y, and Z, be open, be honest, be authentic. I think that's the best thing. If you play a part, people will see it. They'll see it in your nonverbal behavior. They'll see it. You can trying desperately to show emotion when you're trying to remember what the lawyers and the PR people told you to say. It's best just to freewheel it in a yeah. sense and express your emotions. People do appreciate that and they will respond to that even though they may still blame you for or your organization for it, but they'll appreciate it a lot more if you're just yourself. Yeah, no, we, we dance to the music, not to the words. And so those nonverbals really are important. I would have expected, and this is correct, that showing sadness is, of course, very good and appropriate. It's on emotion. It fits the occasion of an apology. Yep. yep. Uh, therefore, the, the study you guys cited said that happiness, you know, kind of a maybe a hollow, non-genuine, fake cheerfulness is very detrimental to the stock market reaction totally. to the CEO's performance and an totally. apology. The other two that strike me, and I guess maybe they weren't part of this study, uh, is if they're showing contempt or the kind of smirking 
or to your point about authenticity and really feeling it, if they're, they're not engaged, there's basically no emotions going on. And, it's and also, I think another, uh, another thing, uh, Dan, that I think isn't good is being defensive yeah. or blaming somebody else. So it's not, you know, yeah, yeah, we're partly responsible for this, and that's why I'm apologizing. However, uh, under the circumstances, that happened, I think, a little bit in the BP disaster in, in the uh, in the Gulf. But, and there are a lot of organizations that do that and try to explain it away. Don't explain it away. Just accept the responsibility. And I, I agree in no humor. You, you know, you're not humorous in a situation where other people have suffered. And it's usually where other people do suffer as a consumer, financially, emotionally, health wise or whatever. Somebody along the line is suffering. And, you know, you have to empathize with that that suffering. Yeah, no, there are real, you know, table stakes involved. And so I, I totally agree with what you're saying. I think I'm going to, you know, we could, we could shoot fish in a barrel or carp in a barrel all day probably on the CEO's apologies. But I'm going right. to switch over to your, your other book, the one on well-being at work, because there's okay. a lot of substance there worth delving into. One is we just have to go, I think, to the topic of bullying and harassment at work. Mm -hmm. um, so important. So I'm, I'm curious what you can say on that front for us. Okay, well, there's quite a lot of research in this field. Incidentally, you know what they call it in Scandinavia and Germany and Central Europe? They call it, which is a re, a kind of a, 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 a very unusual way of doing it. They call it mobbing, M-O-B-B-I-N-G. Okay. But in the, in, in the UK, Ireland, and Western part of Europe, it tends to be called bullying, and the US as well. Anyway, what is bullying? It's persistent devaluing or demeaning of somebody over a period of time. So it's got to be persistent. It can't be you just getting angry at somebody in the office and, and uh, telling them off. I mean, that is an incident that can cause people some displeasure. But if you persistently do it, then that's a bullying case. Now, what I have done is I've done a big piece of research uh, over a million people with a colleague. In fact, I wrote a book on it, Bullying at Work, but we did it a big study on five and a half thousand people from a variety of different organizations in the UK. And we were looking at number one, what's the impact of it? Does it damage people? So we found it damaged their mental health, their self-confidence. I mean, seriously damaged their mental health, their Makes confidence sense. and performance. Of course, if you're persistently devalued and demeaned. And the other thing is that people who are bullied frequently uh, feel that they have made them it's something they did that's wrong and you know why they because they're frightened of sharing the fact that their boss for example in two in three out of four cases it's the boss bullying a subordinate that's what you tend to find okay. although sometimes it could be a colleague sometimes it could even be a subordinate bullying you but it, it's rare that it's more often a boss who's in a position of power over you persistently devaluing demeaning mainly either because they find you a threat they don't like you they're trying to get you out it could be any variety of different reasons for it. very damaging but the damaging bit is not just to the individual we know the evidence on that the damaging bit is to the performance of the work team because if the work team perceive a boss damaging a particular individual what we call secondary bullying or passive bullying Everybody suffers because they think they're going to be the next one to get it. And so it damages the whole work team. So bully, a bullying management style is pretty pernicious. But when you're talking about well-being, 
the bullying is a a more uh, extreme manifestation of something that is more common. What is more common is a bad boss. And by a bad boss, I mean somebody who has absolutely no empathy, uh, is, is somebody who has, uh, you know, not only can't empathize with you, but has absolutely no emotional intelligence and social skills. That yeah. is pretty damaging. And in, in, in terms of well-being, probably the most significant aspect that would increase the well-being of an organization, particularly a work team itself, would be having somebody, would having, having a line manager who has these EQ skills, emotional intelligence. They're socially sensitive. They manage you by praise and reward rather than fault finding. They let you work remotely or flexibly because they trust and value you. Every time you do something well, they let you know it. They don't just, you know, but if you don't, if you do something wrong, they give you constructive feedback rather than negative feedback. That's what makes, in my view, a good boss, good line manager from shop floor to top floor. Unfortunately, from a well-being perspective, Dan, we don't have many of those because people are usually promoted on their technical skills, not their people skills. Sounds a little bit like the corner office scenario once again. It is. Um, in terms of how the, the promotions get handled. I, I'm curious, you had some nice statistics there, some very troubling statistics actually as to who's bullying who and how frequently. How about gender differences? Um, what do you tell how much? Okay, well, well yeah. by the way, I mean, there, there are gender differences. So you get, it's primarily men bully more than women do, right? Okay. But, but when women, when, do you remember the old concept of the queen bee syndrome when we didn't have many very senior women in organizations? We do now because we have pushed the glass ceiling up. But the first generation of what I would call queen bees, in other words, there weren't many of them in senior roles. When they came up, they came up because they were more like men than men. You know what I mean? They, they adopted the male management style. Oh, I, so, I think of Margaret Thatcher, I guess, inevitably. A, a perfect ahead. example. It's a perfect example. Maggie Thatcher was very much like any other male politician, probably even more so. Very strident. Very, you know, she knew. She had a sense of purpose, though. She did have a philosophy, and she adhered to that philosophy, which a lot of male politicians don't do. But she was pretty strident. Um, and so that kind of Thatcher behavior we got early on and they were, they tended to be like males who were bullies. But to be honest with you, uh, now that women have moved up the hierarchy, moved up the, 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 the uh, greasy pole, and there are more all the way up the system, not as many as we would like, but still uh, high up. They are, they tend to be not that type. They don't have to be like men. They're bringing their own management style in. So bullying tends to be, you get, you can get females who bully, but you get significantly more men who bully. And that's why, and then also women have better EQ than men on balance. That's what research tends to show. They have more emotional intelligence because think about where they came from. They came from families. They were the main uh, 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 home um, manager, as it were. They were the people who had to manage the conflicts between kids and between them and the father and they, they were the 
social interpersonal skill manager of the home. And they learned and honed their skills there, gone into the workplace, and they play that kind of role. It's, sorry, my view, I think we need more women in senior management roles because they bring something that a lot of men don't have, which is emotional intelligence. You know, it makes a lot of sense to me. Now, a I, I, couple of comments there. One is I have to imagine that when uh, an employee is bullying a boss, which is certainly less common, as you said, that it may very likely be the male uh, trying to bully a female boss. Uh, the other thing is I'm just curious if you've seen instances where HR has been innovative enough to try to use another manager who's good at EQ to actually, in some ways, team up or intervene with a manager who's more of the bully. Well, I mean, HR is really taking this all very seriously now. It's taken years to do it because, I mean, to be honest with you, what HR did in the past, being very process-orientated, tended to defend a lot of people who were considered bullies because some of these bullies actually delivered to the bottom line, even though they had higher labor turnover, more ill health among their subordinates. Nevertheless, they bullied them in. Uh, and particularly in times when people couldn't go get jobs elsewhere. So there was very little labor mobility. Then HR started to, over the last couple decades, last decade and a half, let's say, really got into the whole business of managing the concept of dignity at work and setting up policies on anti-bullying policies. And most of them have it now. And what they tend to do is they tend uh, to encourage people, and this is what HR should do, encourage people to report people who are bullying so they can do an investigation and check it out and make sure that it's not good for the organization in terms of sickness absence, because it creates sickness absence, it creates, it creates poor performance, uh, it creates labor turnover, and you lose good people as a consequence of it. So they have now more HR departments are having a safe reporting system for an individual, uh, so that sort of like whistleblowing, so that they're protected and laws are there to protect people who do report it. But of course, they have they can't take the word of somebody reporting that because it could be that that's that's the that's the subordinate actually bullying the manager because they don't like what the manager is doing to them or what work it's they're giving them. So you have to do an investigation. Once you do an investigation, you look at the individual and say this person needs training or this person really substantial training. We have to take them out of that scenario or maybe they shouldn't be in a management role altogether. Yeah, no, which can make sense. So when we're talking about bullying, we're, you know, we're kind of more at the interpersonal level. I want to take it to a higher level, as it were. It seems to me that one of the uh, stressors and something that's therefore you know, not serving well-being at work is when the inevitable reorg comes, the reorganization, whether it's mergers and acquisition activity or mm. something else. And in my experience and in talking to others, it can be a very daunting, even almost cruel process because it drips out over time. What have you seen as to best practices for handling a reorg that really protects a worker's well-being uh, emotionally in terms of handling stress, downplaying it? What, what's, what can we look to as to ways to do this well? You're right. That is a really big area. Uh, and, uh, you know, mergers, acquisitions, fa fa funny enough, I I run an academic series of books called Advances in Mergers and Acquisitions, where we look at all the science. It's a, it's a science book, but it's a yearly one. And we look at all the research because two out of three mergers fail, you know. Yep. Two, two plus two ends up being three. 
doesn't mean that <laughs> so two yeah. companies get together two organizations get together it could be in the public sector but say the private sector or wherever and you think two plus two is going to mean five it ends up being three they don't disappear but they don't get the benefits of the merger and why is that the case and that's the case because number one it's done by very senior people for their own personal motives on on the bulk of these scenarios okay so two ceos one of them says one's about to retire the other one says great i can take i can uh, i can do this merger and i can be the leader of this fantastically large organization the leader you know we've gone from number four in the sector to number one so they do it for personal reasons without looking at the cultures that they're it, think about a merger of two companies actually it's a marriage yep so Absolutely. you ask the question, are they suitable? I mean, is this dysfunctional? Yep. Is this going to be a dysfunctional relationship? And, and to be honest with you, you know, they never look at that. What they do is they look at the, you know, the other factors like we will then be number two in the sector as opposed to you being five and me being eight. So we're going to go to number two. Uh, we're going to be able, it's, a, it's two banks. So we're going to be able to get rid of quite a lot of the banks we've got on the high street because there are two of us on the high street. So we can get rid of one of them. Now we can do a lot of cost savings. They don't think about what is the management style of each of the two organizations? What are the cultural and value variables that values variables that make up each of the organizations? Are they compatible like two people, you know, and, and, do they fit? And that's what they need to do. They need to do a kind of culture audit and say, you know what, that culture, our value system is very similar to that value system. I think we can make this work. Or that value system is so far from ours, you know, we'll have to take it over and introduce our own. But then there's conflict that damages individuals. And always they say in mergers and acquisitions what do they say man nobody's going to lose their job very few yeah, job yeah. losses and there's always there's no case which there hasn't been job losses because they downsize some of their uh um estate uh or they uh merge two departments and get rid of people because they have overlap between people they always has an impact and that kind of change so what is really important in a merger and acquisition is number one, are the value systems of two organizations and management styles compatible? Number two, are you managing the process well? Are you engaging the employees from the two organizations with full information, making them feel part of it and helping them to be engaged in making the change process work? And do you have a program of change? So you first decide whether the, the two, the couple should get married. Then you say, now we have to have, ensure that actually it works, that the two are engaged in the, in, in the family decisions that are being reached, i.e. the employers are engaged. In it. You do that and you're going to be all right. But if you don't do that, my book, uh, The Advances in Mergers and Acquisitions, is selling like hotcakes because guess what? We've been going for 15 years. And we do this every year. We look at the science and still two out of three mergers fail because they don't do, they either don't take, they don't decide whether the marriage, the two partners to the marriage are compatible. And even if, by the way, you can do it if they're not that compatible, as long as you manage the change well. 
but they do one or the other of those wrong. Yeah, it seems to me it's a lot more about revenue modeling and a lot less it about is. the cultures and the emotions of the employees. It's not about people. It's not about people, Dan. It's yeah. not about the people. They don't, they don't take people into account. If they did, they'd ask people. They'd say, do you think this is a good idea? Uh, you know, let me tell you something about that company. Get to know everybody in it. Let's do it. Oh, no, we can't do that because it will affect the price of the merger or the, or the cost, particularly if it's an acquisition. And so, yeah, they don't, they, don't, they don't engage the people in the process. And ultimately, people really do suffer in an merger and an acquisition. They feel job insecure. They do dysfunctional kind of behaviors, like attend tons of meetings they don't need to go to just to show FaceTime and things like that. But it could be managed. Yeah, no, and, and it could be, but it isn't so well most times. No. It seems to me another layer of this, and you alluded to it in one of your earlier comments, is the executives are not only isolated in the merger and acquisition activity, they're, they're frankly isolated from the rank and file just by the basis of a very high compensation relative to the other workers. And we all know from studies that a lack of fairness can be quite corrosive to morale. So I wonder what comments you'd like to add on that front. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we have multiples of 200 or 300 between what a CEO gets and what an average employee of that organization gets. That's crazy stuff. That multiple is, I mean, there's been attempts in the UK and in Europe to reduce the multiple down to 20, get it to 20, 25 or something, something reasonable. Uh, and I, I think that's a real problem. You know, the yeah. people actually delivering to the bottom line are the people at the coalface, not the CEO. They're strategic. They have a, a, they have a role to play, but they are not the people who deliver in the end. They may create the environment in which people can deliver, but unless we get that right. And by the way, there's going to be much more attention to that as we enter this massive recession uh, as a result of COVID. There is no question in my mind that employees will start to look at this. And the way to get around this, in my view, is to do like something we have in the UK. We have John Lewis Partnership. That is a chain of department stores, right? Very, the most successful chain of department store in, the, in Europe, just about. Fantastic. And the employees own it. All the employees are shareholders. When you join it, you get shares. When you leave it, you have to sell your shares back to the, to the company itself, to the employees. And I'm not saying that model will work everywhere. What I'm saying is employee ownership is the answer, I think, and giving them some engagement, some commitment to the organization is what I think we're going to see more of post-COVID period. When we yeah, need well, it allows to be committed. Yeah, it allows them into the growth mindset because, you know, salaries are not necessarily growing a whole lot. So if you can at least no. grow the company. So one last question, a little bit more briefly, because we're going to run out of time here. But uh, I just want to pull the lens all the way back and stay with leaders for a moment, because I was trying to think of all the ways in which leaders interface with other, you know, populaces, other bases. So they've got their PR crises, their speeches. So, you know, they're out there testifying in court even. So that's one angle. You've got the employee communications, which you just alluded to. You've got negotiations with unions, regulators, politicians. You've got mm. the stockholders, those learnings, uh, earnings calls. Uh, you've got the customer base itself. So 
I, I've thrown out at least five different tangents in which they are, CEOs are interacting with employees or with people in general. Is there one of those you want to pick on for just a moment where you've got a, an insight, a comment, a, a suggestion for improvement that really could help bring this home? Okay, well, look at, we, we can't expect a leader, really, whether it's a CEO, a C-suite person, any, any kind of leader in any organization, private or public sector, we can't expect them to be good at everything, right? Yeah, fair enough. The really, the really successful leader in my mind should be, number one, the one characteristic I think they should have, all should have, is again going back to being relatively authentic, not just charismatic. It's about being who you are, being, having good social interpersonal skills, and having one or two of the skills you just mentioned, but not necessarily all of them. But somebody, if they have good EQ, they recognize the skill set they, they, they don't have that you alluded to. So they'll say, you know, I'm pretty good at doing that. I'm really lousy at dealing with the media. Do you know what? I'm going to let somebody do that. Or I'm really bad at dealing with industrial relations. I'm, I'm just, I'm not a detail guy. And so I'm going to hand that over to somebody else. So I think a really socially sensitive leader will know what their strengths are and will know what their weaknesses are, and they'll get other people who are good at their weaknesses around them in their team. That's what leadership is all about. You can't expect a football manager. Well, I'm talking about soccer here. Let's, sure. you know, I'm talking about real, real football. <laughs> uh, you know, we're talking the world football, not just American football. Yep, you yep. can't expect that person to be good on the pitch with the players, to be good with the fans, to be good with the media, to be good with the boardroom. They can't have all those skills, but what, but they'll have a skill set that's maybe two or three things that they're good at, but they should be damn good with the players on the pitch. That's number one for them. But but then they'd have somebody else who helps them with some of the other things and helps them fulfill the 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 the, the skill set that they that they may not have. We can't you can't expect somebody in a leadership role to do everything well. But if yeah. they have the sensitivity, they'll know where they're weak and where they get, where they need help. Sure. No, absolutely. You know, that's why you, you judiciously pick your number two because hopefully they cover some of those weaknesses. And absolutely. You can, you can therefore be yourself as long as being yourself doesn't mean you're being Genghis Khan and slaughtering everybody. So um, anyway, it's about time to, to wrap this up, but I want to thank you so much for Carrie for being my guest on Dan Hill's EQ spotlight. This thank has been you. episode number 13. Why managers should say, sorry, I wasn't feeling um, to check out other episodes or my other books or activities, as well as my visits to other people's podcasts. You can go to my website, that's the obligatory three W's and sensorylogic.com. If you've got a follow-up question for Carrie, you can send that to me by email at dhill at sensorylogic.com. If you want to give the show a rating or review, by all means, please do so. That would be gratefully received. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an appropriate epigram. As we've been talking about stresses and strains in the workplace, I'm going to close with a rather bracing comment from Alan DeBudden, who wrote, office life typically proceeds behind a mask of shallow cheerfulness, leaving workers grievously unprepared to handle the fury and sadness continually aroused by their colleagues. 
So on that rather bracing note, I will conclude the show. Until next time, be kind and stay safe. Thank you.